Um, man, they, uh, this looks like a very stable uh, pulpit, but it is really tiny. <laughs> so I appreciate the sti- well, I appreciate the stability. You guys have seen, yeah, there we go. Jeff's. Oh, this is Jeff's. Jeff's is way smaller than yours. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff has a small pulpit. <laughs> okay, yeah, there we go. That's nice, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's neat. You must have a tiny Bible. Okay. <clears throat> All right. It's good to see you guys. Um, it's been a, it's been a few weeks, a couple weeks anyway, since we've been in Romans. Um, and we're going to try to finish out Romans chapter 9 today. So we need the, we need the Holy Spirit's help to do that. Um, and, and as you know, Romans chapter 9 has been a fairly difficult passage to study. It it's, hasn't been easy, um, mainly because it's not doctrinally for us. Uh, it's not directed to us. It's directed towards the Jewish uh, believers that um, had questions about their Jewish friends and the nation of Israel and what would become of them. And so... Um, we're going to look at this, but let's go ahead and pray again. Um, I need God. I've been sick all week, okay, and uh, I lost my voice, and, and I, had, I, have, I still have Alex's on standby. So if something goes wrong, if my voice cuts out, um, Alex, you're up, man. Okay, you ready for that? Okay. Okay. Um, and, and this weekend's just been hard, too. You know, we are, our furnace went out, right? Yeah, furnace one. I know it's ridiculous, but this is this is how this is how it works, right? You cut, remember we talked about the mountaintop uh, being at retreat. You had to, you got to come back to reality at some point, right? And uh, and this is our re- reality: is that there are going to be distractions that keep us from ministering, and we can't let that happen. We, we refuse it, right? We we refuse to let that happen. So is this the same old, same old, isn't it? This is where we're at. Now. For how long? How long must I endure this? <laughs> this is an affliction I'm not willing to endure. <laughs> it is my, it's my thorn. I'll take it. That's not too bad. They, they could be way worse. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and pray. And then uh, be in Romans chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 19 through 33 today. And uh, we're going to try to cover a lot of ground. Um, and it will be uh, very... Um, Heavy. I've got to, I try to make as much application out of this passage as possible, so there's a lot of principle that we'll be using. But let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for, for these people that are here, that are congregating together to hear from your word. God, I just ask um, that you would do the work of setting me aside uh, so that you could speak and that you could proclaim exactly what it is that you want us to hear. Uh, Lord, I've studied, um, even in the midst of distraction, but uh, God, this is, a, this is a difficult passage uh, maybe uh, to com- communicate even more than to study. And so, God, I just ask for your help that you would uh, use me, that you speak through me. And, uh, Lord, at the end of the day, we would have a ministry of leaders who are devoted to doing your work, that they would be concluding that you're worth being right with, that they would conclude for their own lives that, that, um, that Lord, any area that they find themselves rejecting you in or turning away from you, or that they would repent of that, and that they would pursue hard after you, knowing uh, Lord, that you're, that you're waiting with open arms, that you're ready to receive us and to bless us and to bring us into your promise. And so, God, I just ask for your help. And uh, Lord, we love you and ask that you would take this time. Let it belong to you. In your son's name, amen. amen. 
Okay, so um, real quick, let's review. Romans 9 is Paul writing in response to the murmuring he heard coming from Rome. Okay, so obviously, uh, for those of you who are just now jumping in with us, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the early church in Rome. Okay, and in this church in Rome, obviously this is one of the largest metropolitan cities in the world at this time, probably the largest and the most powerful cities in the world. And, uh, and, and there was a, a real mixture of, of different cultures and backgrounds, people that were coming to know Christ as their Savior. And so we've got two factions of individuals. We have the, the, the Jewish believers uh, the Jews that had come to recognize that the Messiah had come and died for their sins, and they put their faith in him, and these were Jewish Christians. And then we have Gentile believers that are coming from a pagan background, uh, false idolatry, uh, uh, common among the Gentile people who've come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're cohabitating, and they're trying to be a body fitly joined. And in the midst of that, in the early church, there was a lot of very difficult questions that the Jews, who had a lot of spiritual and religious baggage, had to ask questions that they had to ask, things that they weren't sure about, that they needed an answer from the Apostle Paul for. And the main question that's being answered in Romans chapter 9, the questions that were swirling about the Jewish Christians, is this. Has God kept his promise to, to Israel in light of Gentile salvation? And so here, this is what I mean by that is the Jews are looking around and they're seeing that all these Gentiles are coming to know Christ. I mean, by the thousands. I mean, they're coming and the Jewish people are hesitant to receive Jesus. And they're looking around and they're noticing that there's a, there's a change in the tide. The things are a little bit different than what they anticipated. And now they have questions about whether or not Jesus is still looking upon his people and that his, whether or not his promises that were given to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament... How, how are those things holding true? And those are the questions that are on the floor. And in response to these questions, Paul spends the majority of this chapter proving to the Jewish believers in Rome how God has unfolded his plan for Israel in times past. Okay, now we've talked about this, that Romans chapter 9 is devoted to looking back on the history of the nation of Israel and seeing how God has consistently been there in order to form a nation of people that are devoted to worshiping God and spreading his name throughout the world. Okay? So let's briefly look back. Can we, can we do that together? Let's briefly look back at what we've covered, at what Paul's covered, so that we have context for what we're about to look at as we finish out chapter 9. Are you with me? You don't seem with me. Um, and, and you know what? I've noticed that today is one of those days. I've, I've noticed that. Yeah, right? Um, it was just the first service, things were a little messy. Just, we're just kind of, we're a little sloppy today. And that's okay. But at least we don't include the word sloppy wet kiss in our rendition of, of David Crowder. Or we clean that up. Yeah, so, but uh, Unforeseen Kiss, of course, that's a more appropriate version of that song among true Bible believers. <laughs> Oh, man. But, uh, so, but, but anyway, we, we, we have Paul. He's looking back, and he begins at the very beginning. Okay? He looks back at Abraham, and he starts with Abraham, and he begins to tell us this story again. He tells the Jewish people of how God, God began this work. And in verses 6 through 8, we see the faith of Abraham was the beginning of God's promise 
to build a nation that would magnify his name. Now, we've, we've addressed this over and over again, but, but notice, if you look at the, the narrative, Abraham's faith was required. He had to believe God. And all of the promises that were for the nation of Israel stemmed from his belief, him putting his faith in God and God, what God said to him. Okay, And that's super important because God doesn't make people do anything. There are certain things that are determined, and we're going to address that even today. There's certain things that God determines, and that's okay. God has the sovereignty and the ability to do that. But as it concerns man's soul and their free will, God, God protects that, and he lets us, in and of our faith, form what kind of person we're going to be and whether or not we step into the blessings of his promises. He lets us make those decisions. And for Abraham, he put his faith in God, and he stepped into that promise. God's promise was, look, I want to build a nation of you. And I want to use your seed to build a great people. And he was an old man. And, 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 and so it, it, he's thinking, man, I don't have any children yet. I don't even think that's a possibility. And God's saying, hey, I, I say it so. And so he had to go to his wife and they had to make a baby in order to believe God for his promise. And they did that. And they did that. And we learn in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, it says, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. And so our, one of our major key points at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 was the following. Key point. Faith in God is the prerequisite to living in his promise. Faith in God. And now many of us, you know, here's the deal. A lot of us in this room have to reckon this, this principle true. We've got to come to conclude this same thing. That faith in God is the prerequisite to living in his promise. Many of us are saying, well, God, where are your blessings in my life? In what way are your promises that you've given to me as your church, as, you, as, you, as a child of, of, of yours, how come these promises aren't being manifest in my life? And for many of us, the conclusion that we have to come to is that we struggle in believing God. And, and faith begets obedience. And for, for Abraham, he believed God and he obeyed the command, he lived in that promise. He, he stepped out into the promise. And for many of us, when we're looking at our lives and we're saying, well, where's the blessing and where's the promise? And, and how come these things aren't manifesting themselves true? Really, the only conclusion that we can come to is that we are struggling with faith. And we're struggling maybe, maybe to obey. Maybe it's an intellectual faith. Maybe we say to ourselves, well, yeah, yeah, I believe. But we don't believe with our lives because, because faith does beget action. And many of us don't put our faith into practice. And so we can't receive the blessings and the promises that God has waiting for us on the table. Does this make sense to you? Yeah. You're looking at me with the tired eyes. I think that you're engaged. But, uh, but we'll see. We'll see. We'll know at the conclusion. Okay? We'll measure it by the invitation. We'll see, how, we'll see how well this takes. We'll measure that by the response to the invitation. Lord, Lord. Okay? Then next we look at the next story, right? Uh, verses 9 through 12. We look at Esau and Jacob. And specifically, Esau's refusal of the birthright and Jacob's desire for it. Okay, now listen to me. We don't think about this very often. But you know, when Esau refuses his birthright, he gives it up. Remember the story? It unfolds like this. Esau and Jacob, they're brothers, right? They're twins. Esau was born first, though. So the birthright belonged to Esau. And one day, they're out, uh, Esau's out hunting. Jacob's chilling, making some chili. That's what I'd be doing. I, have, I, I would never want to go hunting. I can't even imagine shooting something. I don't want to be that guy. I'll be the farmer, and I'll, I'll make the chili, and I'll be waiting at the homestead. Someone else can go shoot the deer. I'm not doing that. Particularly the part where you cut the stuff out of the thing you kill. I'm not doing that. Okay, so Esau, you go do that. Jacob's back. He's chilling. He's making the dinner. 
And Esau has been out all day, and he's, he's making his way into Homestead, and he finds himself of, of such great hunger that he thinks that he's dying. Like, he, he, he thinks that he's, he's coming to the end of his life. And, and, and so his only conclusion is, if I don't get food immediately, I'm going to die. And Jacob takes full advantage of that. And Jacob's desires for the birthright. And so he extends this offer. Hey, I've got some chili for a dude that's willing to give up his birthright. Now we think, okay, this is really absurd. But, but li- listen how egregious this is. You know, we don't think about it this way. But Esau's grandfather was Abraham. The promise came to Abraham. It's not like, it's not like Esau didn't know that the promise was coming through him. It's not like he wasn't fully aware of the fact that God had used his grandfather Abraham, his father Isaac, and was going to use him to birth an entire nation. Esau knew exactly what he was giving up. He wasn't confused at all. But in this moment, because he was considering his flesh more than he was thinking about spiritual things, he was willing to give uh, his birthright up to Jacob. And now, now, the whole point of Romans chapter 9 here is that, that God told Rebekah beforehand, look, Look, I saw this. I foreknew that this was going to happen. And so Jacob is the preferred son, and the birthright is going to go through him. Because what I'm doing is I'm keeping my promise. I'm forming a nation that's going to glorify my name. I'm holding true to the things that I said. Listen, listen, I do keep my promise. Do you see what Paul's proving out here? He's using these narratives to prove to the Jewish people, look, look, God has kept his promise. And so when we look to the next chapters, we can know he's going to keep his promises, right? Okay, so when we look at the story of Jacob and Esau, we, we learn an important uh, point. The faith in God is always about man's personal decision to submit t- to God's word, even when it feels impossible. So for Esau, it felt impossible. It seemed impossible that he could possibly e- even survive here, right? In the story, in the narrative, he thinks he's dying. See, it seems impossible here. The only choice he has is to give up his birthright in his mind. Okay, and we have a lot to learn from that. We can recognize that, look, look, many times we think that faith is so difficult that we have no, no choice but to turn away from God. We have no choice but to not submit. Our circumstances are, but our circumstances are different, God. My situation is different. See, you don't, under, you don't fully understand that I can't submit in this case. I can't submit as it concerns my boyfriend or girlfriend. I can't obey because I'm in too deep. I'm in too deep, and it just, it just seems impossible I just can't, I can't obey you in this way. God, I, I, I just can't see how it's true that you would want to get me through this situation. And so instead, I'm going to turn away. I mean, I mean, God, after all, these are the struggles that I struggle with. These are the temptations that I have. And I can't even imagine what it would mean to give those things up. I can't imagine it. And so I refuse to submit. And what we do is what we, 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 we believe our flesh more than we believe the Lord. And it's absolute wickedness. And there's no blessing there. And so for Esau and Jacob, there's a story there. God puts uh, the promise upon Jacob because Jacob's desire is to obey and to, to, to live within the promise. And Esau, he could, he could leave it or take it. And so then we're led to the next story. Verses 13 through 18, we look at, at the story of Pharaoh. And Paul continues his story by telling us how God was blameless and how he leveraged uh, uh, a man, one man, Pharaoh, one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. He leveraged this man and he leveraged this nation to see his promise to Israel fulfilled. And we're told the story of Pharaoh and and how God used Pharaoh's authority that he gave him, mind you. And the hardness of Pharaoh's heart 
and even solidified that hardness in his heart in order to make his people and his power famous in the world. Okay, you know the story, right? The story of the Exodus. I'm not going to take you all the way back there because if, if you need to learn about it, go back a couple weeks and you can, you can listen to that message. But we know the story of the Exodus and what God did through Moses. And we know, we know the, the, all of the things that were put upon Egypt in order to, to make God famous in this world. And yet Pharaoh's heart was so hard, right? That God just entertained that hardness and made it even more hard. Okay, and determined that he was going to use this man and his wickedness to make his name famous. And he did so. And we even, we even read about that today. Remember, do you, guys, do you guys see this when we were in 1 Samuel today? What was it, what was it that, the, that the Philistines and, the, and the, the wicked men who were trying to decide what to do with the ark, what did they say to one another? They said, remember what God did among the, among the Egyptians? And remember how Pharaoh's heart was hard towards the people? We don't want to do that. I mean, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of years later, removed from this story of the Exodus, people are still, nations are still talking about the day and the months that God leveraged the Egyptian people to make his name famous. Isn't that fantastic? And so the point is, um, is this. God will use good and evil Humility and pride to see his name glorified. He will absolutely do that. He will use wicked men to make his name famous. He will do that. So the question is, are you, is he going to, to make his name famous despite you? Despite you? Or are you in? Or are you in? I mean, as it, as it regarded uh, the Philistines... Their whole point was, look, we're not getting in the way of this guy. Now, did they handle it the right way? No, they didn't handle it the right way. But at least they had the right mindset. We're not getting in the, in, in the way of this guy. We are not going to be made an example this way. Oh, so we've got to do something. Okay? Listen to me. God will absolutely have his name glorified in this world. I mean, the Bible is very clear. Every, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. At some point, every person that's ever lived will have to recognize that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He's King of kings and He reigns from a throne. Everyone will have to recognize that at some point. Will He do it despite you? Or will you, uh, of your own will and of your own good pleasure, bow your knee to the King? Okay, so here we are now in the next portion of this. And what we see is in light of this conversation about Pharaoh's heart, we, we enter into a portion of the text where Paul anticipates the Jews questioning. So he poses the question for them. He, he creates a hypothetical question here. And it must be read correctly. Okay, Romans chapter 9, 19 is not a declaration. It has nothing to do with, with the salvation of mankind. It has nothing to do with the individual salvation. and has everything to do with whether or not the Jewish people have been forgotten. Okay, now listen. Romans 9.19 Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? In this verse, we find Paul once again anticipating the questions of his opponents. The underlying concern, again, being whether or not God is true to his word. Now we see this question similar in verse 19. Romans 9.14 
Okay, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? And, and, and Paul's response is, God forbid. The primary mistake of many is to assume that Paul's rhetoric here, his questioning, is him making a doctrinal statement. Okay? He, that, that he's making a doctrinal statement here. When he says, who hath resisted his will, some would presume is a statement about irresistible grace. Okay? Which is a Calvinist doctrine that supposes God makes uh, choosing him impossible to resist for those he's elected before time. And has nothing to do with that. It's a hypothetical question regarding the nation of Israel. And in fact, Paul is being contextual here. He is posing a question on behalf of his defectors, imagining uh, that they would ask it. And the question could be rephrased like this, just like this, in light of Pharaoh, well, what right does God have to find fault in one nation over another when his will is impossible to resist? What right does God have to find fault in one nation over another when his will is impossible to resist? In other words, their concern is that God has hardened the heart of the nation of Israel. Just like those in Egypt. And that he's abandoned them on a whim. And Paul answers his own hypothetical question here. He answers his own hypothetical question with a redirected question towards his opponents. Are you hanging with me? You staying with me here? Verse 20, he says, Nay. This is his response. Nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto, unto dishonor? Now let's, let's look real quick here because this is super important. The context of this, especially for the nation of Israel, has everything to do with the fact that Israel has, has first rejected the Messiah. And so the forming of the clay and the things that God has and has not determined as it concerns the nation of Israel has everything to do with the fact that in this moment in time that the nation of Israel has in fact rejected the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so, so we're going to look real quick here at, at Stephen's exposition in Acts chapter 7. Okay, and this is the, great, the moment of the great Jewish rejection of Jesus. Stephen's audience, the Jewish people, and the religious order in particular. And so before we look at, at this story, I want to remind you of something very important that Kaya has the pleasure of forgetting at some, at, at sometimes. We've got it so good here. Look at this community. They, look at how insulated we are in terms of our love and protection of one another. There's, there's so many awesome things that God is doing in our midst that sometimes we forget a very important thing that Stephen and the early apostles did not forget. They did not forget. And here's our key point. Is that loneliness, rejection, and occasionally death are, are premiums of a Christ follower. That loneliness, rejection, and occasionally death are premiums of a Christ follower. Those men did not take that for granted. They understood the value of, a, of, of every single soul. They understood the value of speaking with boldness. They, they understood what they were giving up in terms of their reputation and their jobs and their success and their fame. They were, they were completely comfortable with that, knowing that they were serving the Lord. And many of us have the privilege of forgetting that sometimes. And we must look upon Stephen as an example of what it means to be okay with loneliness, rejection, and sometimes death. 
So let's look at this story. It starts for us in Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of power, if you want to turn there, you can. It'll also be up on the screen. And Stephen, full of power, uh, of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Okay, Stephen was a Jewish man, okay? And he was uh, used by God to relay truths among the early apostles. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called, uh, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Syrians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned him, which, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witness, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say, that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that, uh, all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Okay, turn over to Acts chapter 7, verse 11. Then said, uh, I'm sorry, verse 1. Then said the high priest, are these things so? Is that verse 11 or is that verse 1? Okay, verse 1. Then said the high priest, are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Sharon, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show, uh, show thee. Okay, so what is Stephen doing here? He's doing exactly what Paul does in chapter 9. He's laying the, the groundwork for a narrative that leads the Jewish people from the story of Abraham all the way to the Messiah. Because what he wants to do is he wants to evangelize them. He wants to prove to them that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he died and he rose again for the sake of the Jewish people and for the sake of mankind. That's what he's trying to prove here. And he continues to explain to the religious leader, leaders how in every way God prepared them for the coming of the Messiah, that they are, they are absolutely without excuse in not receiving him. Jump down to verse 51. Listen to what he says. It gets real heated there at the end. I'm not going to read the whole story. You can go back and, and read what he had to say. But, but look at verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before, uh, showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven. What a great testimony. And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And, he, and, he, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul, who would eventually become the man that wrote the letter to the Romans. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It was the rejection of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish Christians uh, uh, of the Jewish Christian, our leaders, that led to the Jewish Christians scattering abroad. Okay, so what happens here? Jerusalem is different from this day on. 
This is the beginning of the persecution of persecutions of, of Christians in the midst of the Jewish people. And so the people scatter. And this is the moment in which the leaders of the Christian uh, uh, contingent go out into the community and begin to minister among the Gentiles. Um, look at Acts chapter 8, verses, uh, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So based on scripture, what we learn is that God's favor turned in this moment, turned towards the Gentiles. And it began with the Jewish people rejecting him. That's where it began. The Jews made it clear that they were not going to receive the message of Jesus Christ. They were not going to receive the gospel. And that, what that does, that leads us back to Romans chapter 9 and verse 20. So concerning a nation, a tribe, or an individual, God is justified in responding to that rejection, the rejection of his son, in whatever terms he deems necessary. God is, it's God's complete prerogative to do whatever he wants among the people who reject him. It's his prerogative. You don't get to just reject his son and expect that everything is going to be peaches and cream and that all the promises would look exactly the way that you imagine them. You don't get to do that. And so verse 20, part B, Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why cast thou, uh, uh, hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Again, it's important for us to remember the context of text of Romans 9.20 is God's will for the nation of Israel. It's not individual salvation. And his sovereignty and his justice do not come in conflict with each other here. But nonetheless, Paul turns to an analogy of God as a potter, one who is forming. We're not talking about creating. Again, forming is different than creating. The, the analogy here is a potter forming a, cl- a cl- clump of clay that's already been made. We're not talking about before the foundations of the world, before he made mankind, him determining something. This is him working out his will in the nation of Israel. So Paul turns to an analogy of God as a potter who is forming the nations as he sees fit, just as a potter forms clay. It is, it is in the realm of God's governance to deal with humanity as clay. In this passage, God is a moral governor. It is not in his character or right to create individuals being sinful or, or to, with the intent to punish them, but his, it is his right to deal with sinful beings however he sees fit. Does this make sense? So a pot, listen to me, this is real simple. This is real simple. A pot, in and of itself, is not honorable or dishonorable. What makes a pot honorable or dishonorable? How it's used, what you put inside of it. Now, a pot back in the day, we can think about a pot a lot like the primary vessel for which anything could, it could be used for anything, right? You could put waste in a pot, okay? Uh, and this is, this is common among uh, people of this time period. You'd have a pot that was devoted to waste of all sorts. Uh, then you'd have pots that you kept things that you drank, right? Foods that were perishable. You kept them safe. You kept 
You kept even maybe riches hidden in pots. Okay, so a ceramic vessel could be used for honor or dishonor. But it's what is put inside a pot that makes it either honorable or dishonorable. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Then in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself, here's the, here's the key to being a vessel of honor, right here. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. This is true for the individual. This is also true for the nation of Israel. Repentance makes one honorable. It makes the, the vessel honorable. The free will decision to repent of your sin gives you the ability to purge out the old and, be, and, and, and knit yourself and quicken yourself to the new, to the master's use, prepared unto every good work. And in light of the nation's lack of faith in Christ, it is God's prerogative to turn the nation of Israel over to a position of dishonor and make his honor known among the Gentiles. That is his prerogative. And with that, he gives the Jews a path to repentance in the very next chapter. We look one chapter over and he gives them a clear path to repentance. Now look, he explains this concept of the potter, uh, potter punishing as he pleases further in Romans 9.22. Look at verse 22. What if God, willing to show his wrath, to make his honor known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Which he did do, didn't he? Didn't he endure the nation of Israel for a very, very, very long time in and out of submission to him? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he hath afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So this does not mean that God's plan for Israel is done, as some would suppose, simply that right now he sees them as vessels of dishonor and that they have rejected his son. Does this make sense? Okay, so let's look at the promise to the Gentile people. There was a promise that was given a long time ago, and he explains it here. Okay, verse 25. As he hath said into O.C., which is uh, the same as Hosea. Okay, that's the name Hosea. So he's looking back to the minor prophets here. And he says, As he saith in Hosea, I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. This is a prophecy in Hosea that God would one day draw the Gentile nations to himself. And this was manifest true in the early church and almost immediately following Stephen's death. Almost immediately following Stephen's death, this becomes true. Paul's report to the 12 disciples in Acts chapter 14 was, was that very fact. Acts 14, 27. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all, this is Paul and Barnabas, before the apostles in, in Antioch. And he says they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. That God had come through on the promise, the very promise that he gave in Hosea. That one day, the nations, the Gentile nations, would turn towards him. And this is what God was doing then, and he's been doing this very thing for 2,000 years. And this is the reason why we look around this room, and we see so many people from so many different backgrounds, from so many different religious and, and, and ethnic contexts, come together under the name of Jesus Christ, because of the fact that these people were spread abroad. Thank you, Lord. And he has been doing it without the assistance of Israel. Sadly, 
Besides just a handful of Jewish Christians who have been strategic in the work, both in the early church and even today, look at verse 27, the promise to Israel is sustained, and it's sustained through a remnant. The people, the Jewish people, individuals, now we're talking about individuals who choose to be a remnant among a people who've turned away. Isaiah also, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Isaiah, verse 27, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel. So we look to another prophet. Through the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, uh, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. God has not rejected the nation of Israel. He's not rejected them as much as he's uh, suspended his pursuit of the Jewish people, the people that, are, that refused him. Yet there are some that are saved, okay? There's some that are saved, a remnant, those who are working to make Christ's name famous in the earth, okay? And we know that. Some of us know Jewish believers, even in this church, that are gospel-believing, right? And so these people are the people that, that God is talking about in terms of the remnant, Romans 11.2, this is very important, and we'll get to it again later. Romans 11.2 says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession uh, to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now listen to me very carefully here. The Jews here, they're asking, they're posing this hypothetical question that Paul's talking to. Are the remnant people, these are Jews that have come to know Christ. That's who he's speaking to. Right? And so what he's telling them is that, look, you are of a remnant people. Look, even, even Elijah thought that he was all alone. That he was the only one. Where are the people? Why aren't the people following you? Where are the other prophets? Where are the, the other Jewish people that are speaking the truth? And God's message to him was, look, you don't know about it. But there's another 7,000 people that worship me. They have not bowed to Baal. And they're doing what I've asked them to do. And you don't even know of them. And this is what it means to be a remnant. And here's our next key point. There is always a remnant willing to steward God's word, even when no one else will. There is always a remnant willing to steward God's word. There is always a people that are exceptional. When a culture of people turn away from the Lord, when a society has refused Christ outright, and this is true even today, this applies to us. We can, we can choose to be a remnant people, people that, that, that believe in the preserved word of God, that hold it true, that God has given us his very words, and that we can declare it among the heathen. We, we've got to believe that in the midst of, 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 a, of a culture of Christianity that says, let's not step on anyone's toes. Let's be very careful about what we say. Let's not be offensive, even though the word of God in and of itself is an offensive book. Let's not be offensive. Let's pull back the reins and let's fit in. And that's what's going on in our world. And we get to choose in love to deliver truth as a remnant people to those who don't know. I can't believe, sometimes it shocks me, when I go to my high school, that I teach at, and I hear kids, literally, who know nothing. I'm talking about typical, suburban, white, middle-class individuals who know absolutely nothing about Jesus Christ. They couldn't even relay to me the story of his death, burial, and resurrection. I have no idea. You know why? Because Christians have turned away from truth. You know what? That doesn't have to be true of us. 
That does not have to be true of us. We can be a remnant people, just like these Jews in the early church, just like these people that Paul's speaking to. Look, 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 look at you. Look at you. I know, I know, the nation of Israel, it seems impossible. It seems like God has forgotten them. It seems like he's turned away. It looks like he's, he's completely forgotten you, but look, look at you. Look at what God's doing in your life. Next, let's look at the promise received in faith. The promise received in faith. And as Isaiah, another prophet that we're looking at, and as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of of Sabbath had left us a seed, we have been as Sodom and been like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. And here's why. Wherefore? Wherefore? Why have we not attained to the law of righteousness? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone is the Gentile people. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion... A stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. The stumbling stone is Jesus Christ come to die for, the, for, for all of the nations. That's the stumbling stone. And they're stumbling over it even until today. How could it be that our Messiah came into this world and he went under the radar? That couldn't be true. How could it be that our Messiah came for a people that we believe are wicked and heathen? How could he do that? And it's an offense to them, even until today. And so at the end of this chapter, the Jews conclude a few things. Let's look at the conclusion that the Jews have to have based on what what Paul says here. First of all, God has done everything to make, uh, make us his promised people. They have to say that, to make the Jewish people his promised people. He's done everything. I mean, we looked at this narrative. We've spent four weeks studying this, that God did everything that he could for his promised people, and yet they rejected his son. Okay, so they're without excuse. They have to acknowledge that. Two, the rejection of the Messiah has, has resulted in God's neglect of his people. Okay, he hasn't forgotten them, but his attention has turned somewhere else. That's what's going on, because his people are blind. His people have chosen blindness. And so he's given them over to entertain that. Just like their fears of Pharaoh in in, in Egypt, God has given the nation of Israel over to their own blindness, their refusal. Third, the church age is marked by God's use of faith-filled Gentiles. The church age is marked by God's use of faith-filled Gentiles. They have to come to the conclusion by the end of this chapter that God is doing a new thing. Have you guys heard that song, brother? That that video? That video is the best. God's doing a new thing, right? You haven't seen that? YouTube it. Have you seen that, Brian? Oh, it's so funny, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's so bad. No, but God is, in terms of the Gentile people, he was doing a new thing. And they have to come to the conclusion that God is using these faith-filled Gentiles to see the world change. And four, God is not done with the nation of Israel. Jump over to Romans 11.1. 1. I say then, have God cast away his people? God forbid. There's a lot of God forbids in Romans, isn't there? Has God cast away his people? God forbid. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah. Now when we get to chapter 11, this will make more sense. But let's talk about us for a minute. 
Let's talk about the conclusions that we need to make. They sound a lot like some of the conclusions that the Jewish people had to struggle and grapple with. The first one is, God has done everything to reach you. God has done everything to reach you. And some of you in this room are still refusing to receive Jesus Christ. You know what he's done for you. And yet you stand at the threshold, you stand at the precipice, and you refuse to step out. Knowing that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into this world to set you free from your sins. And yet you stand there, and you've got excuses. You've got your reasons. But God has done everything to reach you, so do not act like he hasn't. He's given you a word. He's given you a completed word. He's brought the Holy Spirit to dwell in, in human beings. He's given us a church that declares the truth of Jesus Christ. He's given you, Romans chapter 1, he's given you nature that, that declares his very name. He's given you everything to, reach, uh, everything to receive him. Do not reject him. And, and, and two, if you reject the Messiah, he is not obligated to make you receive him. If you, choose, if you choose to reject him, he is not obligated to make you receive him. He's not going to force your hand. You get to choose, just like the nation of Israel did. Third, God wants to use the church, which includes you, to reach this world before the church age ends. But this requires faith. Now let me, let me say it to you like this. Some of you in this room are Christians, but you have no purpose. You have no purpose. You wouldn't even know where to take me in Scripture to find the declaration of God's commission to you. You would have no idea where in the Bible God says, this is what I want for people who follow me. You wouldn't even know how to do that. And the reason is because you haven't been serious about the things of faith. And and listen to me, I'm asking you this morning that if, if you're struggling to know God's word. If you, if you are a Christ follower in word, but not in deed and not in belief, and it's because you don't know his word, then this morning you need to take care of that. And you need to decide today, grab the person that invited you or grab someone that you trust and pray about whether or not you need discipleship. Whether or not you need to repent of something. If there's something that's getting in the way of you following and pursuing the Lord with everything you have, you have a purpose, believer. Live in it. And lastly, God is not done with the nation of Israel. God is not done with the nation of Israel. So we shouldn't be either. Don't fall prey to replacement theology. Don't fall prey to it. God is not done with his people. And he is going to do everything that he promised. And the the clay right now that that is being used as a vessel of dishonor, okay, a people that are stubborn, and God is, is even allowing them to be punished based on their decisions, will one day be exactly what he wants them to be. And they will repent. And, and I'm thankful for that prophetic word. I'm thankful for that. Now listen to me, believers. This morning, if any of those things, if you feel the stubbornness of the nation of Israel, if you feel that same kind of stubbornness in your own individual heart, then let's use the principles that we've learned today to lead us to a place of repentance where we recognize that God is worth following and that His Word is worth believing and it's worth holding and it's worth handling the right way and it's worth delivering to people who are lost. Before before Christ returns, we have a lot of work to do, remnant people. We have a lot of work to do. But we have to choose it. We have to take it. You understand me? 
So let's pray now. And if you have something you need to work through, let's do that. Grab somebody. Pray with them. Worship team, would you please come up? We're going to pray. Ask the Lord to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of Romans chapter 9. God, forgive us for the fact that so much of uh, men's philosophies has made its way into the interpretation of of Romans chapter 9 in particular. And God, we want to to just say, Lord, that we want to believe you, your word. We thank you for the word that you've given the nation of Israel. God, we want to acknowledge it. And God, we want to pray that, Lord, even so, come quickly. Do your work in that people. Emmanuel, come quickly. Um, and, And God, we pray also for our own lives that, Lord, we would not waste the time that you've given us. As Gentile Christians, we want to use everything you've given us. And we want to steward it all the way right up to the end. And Lord, we want to do it without fear, without fear of loneliness, without fear of rejection, and Lord, even without fear of death. 